Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Best Ever You Show. I'm Elizabeth Hamilton Garino here with Rick Keller. It's so nice to have you with me. Thank thrilled you. To, thrilled to be with you, Elizabeth. Yeah, well, let's hold up that book. We're here to talk about your new book. How cool is yes, that? Yes, yes, thank the you. Bears. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, and is this out yet or is it still in pre-order? That's well, first question. of all, let me say that the big congratulations are to you for your International Book Award for the Change Guidebook. I think that's oh. so, so awesome. Um, so, yeah, my book is out September 27th, so next Tuesday. Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot of work putting a book out, isn't it? It's, it's super fun, though, but wow, right? It's a lot of work. I, you know, I this book only took me 57 years to write, you know, just cranked it right out, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm about to turn 53 on Saturday. I'm like, yeah, same thing. Um, yeah. How about Lori? I, I love, I, you have Lori in the beginning, Lori in the end, Lori yes. in the, you know, everywhere. Let's talk about Lori for a second, because she brought just a huge smile to my face. And I, I, I love wife Lori. Yeah, Lori was just uh, life changing for me. I uh, I was going to a buddy who was running for public office, his campaign kickoff, and he went to the University of Florida. And Lori um, was friends with him from back in the college days. Happened to be there, and afterwards we all went out for a drink to celebrate, kind of a post party. And I'm um, I'm talking to her. And uh, I find out from other people, she's so humble, but she was the homecoming queen at University of Florida and got her um, her MBA from Harvard. And she heads up this charity to help poor people in Africa get health care. And she's such a sweet person and, and so positive and, and witty that I was uh, I was smitten, you know, and, okay. and uh, we got married exactly one day or one year to the day after we met. And it's just been been awesome. Yeah, one day after you met would be a little bit. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Same day. Yeah, February. Same day. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Um, did um, I, I, I want to go to the end of the book for a minute because it's called Chase the Bears. Talk about the title for a minute because I know at the end, I don't want to give away the end of the book, but I kind of sure. do. Cause it's not really about chasing like literally bears. <laughs> so you made you Lori and I, it's a Sunday morning. We're reading the paper, drinking coffee. And I look outside my window and there is a family of bears going by a big mama mm -hmm. bear and three cute little cubs. And we both look at each other and without saying a thing, we jump up and go outside and chase these bears. We just wanted to continue this amazing experience, especially seeing the little cubs. And we never caught up with them. And afterwards, when all the smoke clear, I said to Lori, you know, Lori, um, that may not have been our smartest idea. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A Florida black bear can run 35 miles per hour, uh, an Olympic gold medalist only 28. So if that mama bear had turned around and wanted to charge after us, um, she could have got us. I mean, I'm pretty sure I'm, I can run faster than Lori, but could have got one of us anyway. And um, I said to Lori, I said, you know, it, it was nuts, but at the same time, I think that's kind of a metaphor for life because most people are content to stay inside and play it safe and look out their window as life passes them by and eventually the clock runs out. But some people go for it. They chase their dreams. They chase the bears. And Lori said, Rick, that's that's the name of your book. Yeah. That's how we that's we came up with that name. Yeah. Now I want to go back all the way to like kindergarten you or preschool you or like, yeah. I mean, did you always want to do everything that you're doing right now. Like what were your, what were your little kid dreams? What did uh, you dream of chasing? I thought I was going to be a, a pro uh, baseball or football player uh, when I was a little kid, like, like so many other people. 
And then <laughs> when I um, graduated high school, I thought it would really make my mom and dad proud if I became a doctor. And mm -hmm. so I became a um, pre-med student and I was um, able to deliver some good news and bad news for my mom and dad. I, I did end up graduating number one in my class with a 4.0, good news. The bad news was I volunteered at a VA hospital to get some experience for my med school application and I hated everything about it. I don't like the sight of blood. I don't like the smell of a hospital, the cranky patients. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I feel so stupid you know, figuring this out after four years and taking organic chemistry and stuff like that. And so I felt so, so conflicted. I had to take off a year between college and, um, and graduate school, and I still couldn't decide. I went to New York City and had a job there. And so I had a big idea that I would uh, go to the Pocono Mountains, where I'd never been before, with my tent and pack a tent in the, in the middle of the woods and just listen for that still small inner voice to guide me. And I did that. And instead of hearing an internal voice, I literally heard the grunt of a bear outside and scared the heck out of me. So I raced my car as fast as I could, drove into town, went to a local pub and I got a big cold uh, mug of beer. And I, I said to myself, Rick, you promised you'd make this decision, this, this, uh, this, um, this weekend. So you got to do it, buddy. And I was just sitting there and I closed my eyes and I just said, God, just give me a sign. Just help me here. And I looked up and there on the wall was this big poster uh, of a politician um, having a free barbecue the next day. And that was it. That's, that was the moment I decided to, to go into politics and law. And I never looked back. And my wife, Lori, says to me, well, thank goodness that uh, sign wasn't a a sign saying the circus is coming to town because otherwise you'd be a lion tamer right now. <laughs> yeah. Siegfried and Roy, I'd be Siegfried and Rick, but that's, <laughs> that's sort of my evolution career wise. Yeah. And are you, and are you so happy with, do you look back and go, Oh, I should have been a doctor. Oh, I should, you know, no, I, like I'm that, so right? happy. What, what the conflict was at, at the end of the day was logic versus intuition. My logic said, go to med school. My then girlfriend at the time was going to start med school at the same time. And you can make a good living and help people. Yep. And then my intuition said, no, go into law and politics. That's more your gift. But I thought to myself, you know, use car salesmen, politicians, lawyers, all the same. I, I don't want to be one of these sleazy, untrustworthy people. But but my intuition said, yeah, Rick, that's that's your gift, buddy. That's what you should be doing. And from the moment I made that decision, the the doors opened up. I, I got accepted into um, Vanderbilt Law School and I wrote a note to my dad and I said, Dad uh, and my stepmom, I plan on busting my butt uh, to get elected to Congress. And I wrote that note. It was November 7, 1990. And exactly 10 years to the day, November 7, 2000, I was elected to the U.S. Congress. Wow. That's a, that's an amazing story of, yeah. of trusting. I love I love stories like that because I, I kind of have a similar story. If, I, if you don't mind me sharing it with Please. the audience and you. Same thing. I, I thought all the way since about age 12 that I was going to be a neurosurgeon. I mean, organic chemistry was easy and you know, all these things. Math was pretty easy. All these things. I was very logically and mathematically and scientifically inclined. And I got to the University of Iowa and I was like, oh, no, 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 no. This is so sad, actually. I don't like that guess what you've got kind of feeling, you know, that I, I just, I didn't like it at all. And so I went, I pivoted into journalism 
so I could connect with the, the positive people, you know, positive in people or stories of struggle or stories of pivot or, you know, whatever it was, but to give people that boost rather than telling yeah. people that they're sick or whatever. I just, I did not, it didn't sink, sit well with me, but um, yeah. And in the middle of my college career, my parents went bankrupt. So I had to put myself through school, working full time and going to college full time and doing all these things. So it was really quite a struggle. So I was, when I got that ma uh, bachelor's degree from St. Ambrose University in Davenport, Iowa, because I transferred, it was like the most proud moment ever. I'd worked so hard <laughs> for that degree. It was, it was mind blowing how hard I worked for that degree sure. um, through full-time school and full-time work. Um, really difficult to do. Ugh. We had a very similar pivot then, you know, I was going to be, I thought I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon. I was an old jock and, and you're a neurosurgeon. And so we, we pivoted there from the communication skills, you know, yeah. and I don't write about this in the book because it's, it's so humiliating and embarrassing, but I'll tell you since you're, you seem to be. <laughs> I got it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when I was struggling with this decision, my, um, my senior college, I, I knew I was going to break my parents' heart. So I called up my younger brother for sympathy. And I, I told him, look, I don't like this. I don't like sight of blood. I don't like anything yeah. about this. And he said, what did you think? being a doctor would be like, what were you thinking? And I said, well, this is what I was thinking. It was truthful. I saw myself at a, at a cocktail party and I'm a young guy and I have a stethoscope and this beautiful blonde comes up to me and Marilyn Monroe. And she says, uh, are you a doctor? And I was like, yeah, I am a doctor. And then we just get in a Porsche and we ride away. And he said, Ann, I'm like, and, and that's what I imagined being a doctor is like. And, and Jack was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. So I did a huge favor to the world by not going into medicine. Oh, I did a huge favor to the world, too. I, I'd be the person who's leaving sponges in people. Because, uh, that was the other thing about me, too. I seem to always need an editor or always need, you know, I'm always kind of, I got you generally, but then there's a specific thing that I've forgotten or something. Not, sure. I would not be a, a, a good human being for that. Anyway, pretty funny. Um, yeah, let's go back to your book. And um, sure. so what's the, tell me about your, tell me about politics without telling me about politics, if you can. <laughs> so the best thing about politics, and I was, I'm a bit unusual in that um, I happen to be a Republican, but I spent all my time in D.C. focusing on a Democrat issue, which is increasing Pell Grants to help poor kids go to college. And I was just on a mission. And the reason was something I had a big emotional turning point for me. Uh, I was 17 and raised by a single mom and didn't have a lot of money and couldn't afford to go to college. And my mom said, you know, Mr. Overstreet has his company frequently write charitable contributions. Mr. Overstreet was 81, CEO of Overstreet Investment Company. Why don't you meet with him to see if his company would uh, stroke you a check and send you to college? So I met with Mr. Overstreet in his big office and I said, I'm so passionate about this. I promise I'll get all A's. He won't be throwing money away. And he said, son, I'm just the CEO here. I've got to answer to a board of directors. Come back Tuesday and I'll let you know. And so I came back that Tuesday. I didn't sleep the night before. And he said, here's the answer. It's, it's no. Uh, the mm -hmm. company said they're not going to help put you through college. It's nothing personal, Rick. But if they do that for you, in fairness, they're going to have to do that for every other employee's kid. And they're not set up to do that. And so my intuition was just just be grateful that he tried. And so I started saying, thank you, Mr. Overstreet. 
and I can't even get through it now. And I just started crying. And because it hit me at that moment that I was never going to be going to college. Oh, and we have the same so, moment. Yeah. And he, he I, right leaned here. over and, and he said, son, you can wipe the tears away. I said, the company couldn't put you through college. I didn't say that I couldn't. And he <laughs> stroked a check and sent me to college. And four years later, I kept my promise and was top of my class. And uh, he lived just long enough to see me graduate from Vanderbilt Law School. And on the day I won my election, my victory speech was sharing that little story um, because I wanted to know, let people know how one person can really make a difference. And in this particular case, because I became chairman of the Higher Education Committee, I was able to increase Pell Grants by 62 percent, which helped five and a half million extra poor kids go to college. And so literally one man. One single kind act with no publicity, no ulterior motive, nothing impacted five and a half million lives. So that's my political story without being political, if you will. Yeah, I'm a Pell Grant recipient. I get oh, it. Oh, awesome. Okay. I, have, I went in crying, going, this is what just happened to my family. This is what happened to my parents. There's no money anywhere. Yeah. Uh, I just transferred from the University of Iowa. I I kept myself busy going to community college for a year, getting what I could afford and work and all that stuff. And I came into St. Ambrose just absolutely in tears into the financial aid office and into the TV studio. (laughs) Duke Uh, Snyder (laughs) to this day is like, we helped you. And I'm like, yes, you did. All of you guys there. And uh, yeah, yeah. Pell Grant kid right here. Yes. All right. Where where I am. And I, I, I dreamed of going to Harvard as a child which yes. it was a stretch back then, but I, I, a few years ago went to Harvard and did leadership and all the good stuff. So oh, I feel, yeah, but anyway, yeah, I love sharing stories back and forth. I think that if you don't share your stories, people feel alone. Yeah. But right now somebody's listening going, boy, I felt alone until I listened to you guys talk. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think stories are the best way to, uh, communicate universal truths. I, I think there's a reason Joel Osteen is so popular. There's a reason Jesus communicated through stories. There's a reason Jack Canfield broke every record. I mean, people love and can appreciate stories and, and can pull out the universal truth from them much better than statistic or logics or other things. Yeah. Uh, okay. So come go back to your book here. Um, sure. I'm going to open it up a little bit here. It's divided into two parts. Do you want yes. to share share just the structure of the book and what the book's about and everything? It's right sure. Go get this book, guys, everybody. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. It's a really good book. So looking at it from a 30,000 uh, point view, the, the first part of the book is designed to lift people up. And then the second half of the book is designed to bring people together. Um, you can't do it alone. And it talks about how to connect with others and network that, that sort of thing. And so in the first part of the book, the, the most important part, I think, is encouraging people to use their gifts and take chances that are aligned with their purpose. And what makes it a little different from uh, many other similar books is that I provide the how to do it in terms of a three-step formula uh, specifically that you can use to change your thoughts into reality. And it's the same formula I used and Jim Carrey and Dolly Parton and Steve Harvey. And so sharing that with people, I think, is really going to be helpful. Um, It's like David versus Goliath and and David had that slingshot as an unconventional weapon. I think this three-step formula is the slingshot that's going to help 
kids like you and me who, who are struggling and, and need, needed a break. I think this might be their break. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good one. Do you, um, I want to kind of talk about the use your gifts and I want to talk about your Ted talk too, but I know that's kind of in the second half of the book. Do you want to talk about the first part of the book first? Sure. You both structure. Sure. Overview? <laughs> you, you yeah. Really want to go with that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so gifts, um, are the thing people want to know, what's my gift? It's the thing you do the absolute best with the least amount of effort. The thing that comes very easy to you and you're good at. And if you start doing this thing, you're feeling like about a six, 45 minutes later, you're feeling like a 10. You've lost track of time. You thought it was 30 minutes, but it's 40 minutes or, or four hours. That's your gift. That That's the thing you're supposed to do. And I think it's absolutely important for people to use their gifts in life, use it every day, irrespective of the particular career, whether it's lawyer, politician, TV host, if your gift is public speaking and communicate uh, communication, then, then use it. And I think sometimes people hear like a false narrative in commencement speeches. If you can do anything you want in life, no, you can't. I, I can't dunk a basketball or play a center for the Orlando Magic. But you can do anything you want in life if you use your gifts and stay in your lane. So that's a big big part of my, uh, the first part of the book and the other part being, um, trusting your intuition and taking chances. Yeah. Good. What, as you were talking, I was like, you know, but what if we're so focused on somebody else's gifts and we just want to be them? <laughs> have you yeah. ever, have you ever felt that way? You know, you're just like, Oh gosh, can you work so hard with, to, to achieve something that somebody, you know, that isn't easy for you? Yes. Can I mean, you do that also, like, a, a, a perfect example of me is what we, we talked about. Uh, I don't really care for science. I'm not naturally good at it, yet I, I had the highest grade in organic chemistry in my class. And it was it was swimming up upstream, man. I mean, I six, seven hours a day for that class alone. But my best best buddy, his dad was a doctor. And I thought it'd be great to make my parents proud of me by being a doctor. But it wasn't my gift. I mean, it, it came hard for me. It came really hard. Um, public speaking and humor comes very easy. Um, I'm horrible at te technical things. Horrible. <laughs> I'm lucky I even logged on with this. But I, I think I think a good example, if I can give it, is Albert Einstein won the Nobel Prize in physics. If he had decided instead to be a professional bull rider, he would be equals MC squared on his butt in eight seconds. But yeah. he used his gift and stayed in his lane. And that's I think the most important thing, if people even took one thing out of the book, it would be that. Yeah. I yeah. I always think, boy, if people, if people knew that I was good at making chocolate chip cookies, like that's my actual <laughs> gift. I'm like, what do I do with that though? You know, I always think that a lot. I, and so what I did with it, it what I, a long time ago, I'm like, that's my gift. I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. I'm probably not going to open up stores because a lot of cookies you got to do to pay rent. You know, I could probably do that, but, eh. yeah. but I ended up donating, um, Cookies. I've probably made hundreds of thousands of cookies all across this country and donated them to kids, uh, sports teams and all, all sorts of stuff and did story times and everything. So I love I absolutely smiled from ear to ear when I was reading in your book. I'm like, use your gifts. I'm like, yes, even yes. if even if it's not something that you're going to make money at. Yes. What do you think about that? Can you add that twist? Yeah, I'm not going to make I don't think in my lifetime my goal is going to be to make cookies and make money at it. So the, the most common question I get in, in media interviews is, well, you know, what if you're in your your mid 40s or, or 50 and you got two or three kids to support and you got a mortgage and you just can't go do your 
gifts and, you know, become an actor in Hollywood or a stand-up comedian or whatever, you, you have the real world to deal with. And what I would say to that is do use your gifts every day and you start out by doing something that's free. So for example, let's say you wanted to be an actor, you start out doing the community theater and do something that's free. Or if you want to be a stand-up comedian, do something that's free and then transition into making it your side hustle about 20% of your time. And then 80% is doing the job that pays your bills. And then ultimately once that gets rolling, then you can transition into it. So I just know that, that using your gifts is going to make people so happy that I, I, I personally would rather be a public speaker making um, a smaller amount than I would being a, a scientist making a much larger amount. Now, my cat, that is my cat, Mel, in the back. You're noticing? That is Mel the podcast kitty. She only comes out. She came out for people she loves when she hears their voices. If she loves what you're saying and so forth, she'll come out. She's a rescued feral cat. Uh, Just totally off track. She's out, everybody. Look at (laughs) I have a black cat, too. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. She's, She's loving this. So she's all about using your gifts. We rescued her, and she's funny. Anyway, um, do do you like animals? Sorry for, for yeah, I like animals. Yeah. I'm I'm allergic to um, yes, to right. animals. So I, and when I married Lori, she brought a black cat into it. So I I have to take these little drops every day because I I think if she had to choose between the cat or me, she's going to pick the cat. So I just went to an allergist <laughs> and I I take my little allergy drops every day, and and it's a sweet little cat. But I, I like animals, but. For example, if I had a dog, I'd have to have something mixed with a poodle, like a capapoo or something, you know, that's yeah, hypoallergenic. Yeah. We just got Bernie Doodles puppies and they're the cutest oh. things ever. Yeah. So, all right. That's yeah. They're, they bring laughter and joy and all sorts of smiles to our, our home. So we love them. All right. Go on over to the second part of the book here because you've got a TED talk yes. uh, that is Wow. It's, it's changing the world, changing lives and everything. I think I read it was like the fifth or it might be even be the most popular Ted talk at this moment here, but it's really popular. And um, talk about how nerve wracking that is doing a Ted talk. I've got that kind of on my goals. I'm like, do a Ted talk. I'm like, uh, and then I cross it out. <laughs> Scary, fine. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. So my Ted talk is called the power of self-deprecating humor. I believe it's the number one secret weapon in America that is not used and, yeah. and very rarely used. And so I, I wanted to have in this nervous situation with the, with the, cameras and lights and everything. I wanted my wife to be there and her family. So they get there an hour early so they can get seats in the front row. But it turns out there were assigned seats. And so there's six or seven rows um, (laughs) deep and the lights are so bright. I can only see part of the first row. And it's four African-American students who go to the University of South Florida. And I'm wondering, can they relate to this old white Republican guy? But from the moment I started talking, it's about 12 or 13, they were hysterical the whole time, laughing. And I thought to myself, man, this, maybe this is going good, you know, uh-huh. if, if I'm connecting with them. But I couldn't see my wife at all at, or, or her family. Uh, it was a fun experience. It was a lot more time intensive than I thought. For example, uh, we had to, to go down and, and practice it on nine different occasions and video recording and tape recording and one of the most fascinating things for me is they assign you a mentor, right? And in my case, they assigned me a young lady and she is a junior in college. And, uh, 
And I said to myself, Rick, you know, go in there with an open mind. I, I attend a college on a public speaking scholarship. It's what I do. It's my favorite thing. And I thought, you know, you don't know everything. Just keep an open mind. And she had these six or seven points that she thought I uh, should do to be a better speaker. And she was 100 percent right on everything. Cool. And I and I, I would give her 50 percent of the credit for that TED talk because uh, she just gave me such good pointers. Yeah. Isn't it great when you hang out with all different types of people? Yeah. We were, I was on a call the other night with people from Trinidad, Japan, and Canada. All, we're all so different and we all different ages, everything. Isn't that the neatest thing about life? It is. Ah. It is. And yeah. it, I, if I had to sum it up in 30 seconds, the TED talk, it's essentially, I believe that self-deprecating humor is so powerful because it connects you with people. It deflects criticism. It builds rapport. And yet there's two reasons very few people uh, use it. And the first is we have been programmed our whole life to present this perfect image to the outside world. Yeah. Fake it till you make it, put your best foot forward, never let them see you sweat. And I think the truth is exactly the opposite. Yeah. I think we connect with people by being vulnerable and authentic and real. And the second thing is that self-deprecating humor actually takes a heck of a lot of self-confidence. And some people just don't have it. And you are essentially saying to the world, I know that I'm flawed, but I also know I'm a good guy and I believe in myself and you should believe in me too. And if you can do that and be real, people will connect with you and, and appreciate you. So that's kind of the, the thesis of the TED Talk. And I give various examples of how I stumbled onto this knowledge and that sort of thing. <laughs> Good. Do, do, talk about networking and how important networking is uh, to you. So, so I, I talk about the three principles of networking and what gives networking a bad name is, is this character of people want something right away. And what can you do for me? And good networking really is about building long-term authentic relationships. And so my first point is when you meet someone new, no ask for a year. And by that, I mean, don't ask them for anything that requires them to expend political capital. You could ask them who the dentist is or something, but don't ask them to get you a job or a book deal or something. Your, your first year, no, no ask. Second thing is bring value to the relationship. And so many people think, well, gosh, what can I offer this rich and powerful and famous person? Well, you know, when Jeb Bush was running for office, he was he was rich and powerful and famous. But I'm a pretty good little joke writer. And so I could offer him that. And maybe you can offer sweat equity to it and do the work. And the third thing is hang out with people who you genuinely like and are high quality. And the reason is, if you never get a single thing out of it or them anything out of you, you're still hanging out with people that you would have hung out anyway. And I think if, if people take in those three principles, which is essentially saying, worry about building long-term authentic relationships, the, the rest will take care of itself. Yeah. What about when you meet somebody and you're like, oh, I love them and I've got something at this exact moment that they'd be perfect for? Do you still not ask? Like, for example, I just met you and I'm like, oh, he'd be so cool in my next book. Do I wait that year? No, no. It's <laughs> not requiring you to. I'll give you an example of what's expending political capital is I I had a lunch recently with someone I didn't know at all. And they said, you know, I. I think I'd be a great judge. And I know you know the governor. And so oh. I want you to call the governor tomorrow and uh, have him appoint me judge. And I don't even know you. 
you know? And so politics, you only have so many favors you can ask. And so that was a little much, you know, if, if that person had said, uh, I'm new in town, you know, a good tailor or a good dentist or something, that's fine. But yeah. don't ask for things that are going to put people out in the first year because you don't want them to think that they're being used, you know, because yeah. even if they do it uh, short term, it, they're going to feel used long term and you don't want that. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. That's a, that's a great rule. Um, yeah. I love I love I don't want to discourage people from asking for those big asks, though. The, um, the, sometimes those big moments you have where you're like, boy, I've been like, I'll, I'll give an example. Like I, I've been dreaming of meeting Jack Canfield since I was like way younger than I am now, you know? And I, and I had go, I have goals written down, you know, I would like to have Jack Canfield endorse my book. I'd like to have him on my, you know, all those things. And to me, that was a huge ask. I'm like, I'm going to ask this and I might get no, 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 (laughs) but those asks are huge. Do you think that that's important to do is to is to have those moments where you do step out of your comfort zone and ask for something larger than than you? If it's like you said, not the whole scenario you just played out. Yeah. But when you're <laughs> asked for the little something, one. something you've been you've been thinking about your whole life and, and so so wonderful that, that you got his endorsement. I, I mean, did, I, yeah. you, you got the guy who is in the Guinness Book of World Records for having seven books on the New York Times list at, at, at mm-hmm. one time. Uh, I don't think that's a big, um, I don't think that's a big time consuming thing for Jack. I think he, he knows you're a good writer. You've got an award winning book. You're at the same publisher. I think he's probably happy to do it. Um, And you're just say, for example, you're up in Maine and you're on the committee at your college and you need a commencement speaker. And you asked me today, first time meeting me to be a commencement speaker. I'd love it. I'd do it. I can tell you the answer is yes, because I don't, there's nothing I like more than that. And so when, when you're asking for something that's that's easy for that person to do, uh, I, sure, go ahead. It's just I, I worry about doing anything that makes a person feel used, like you're asking them to expend political capital. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's a great. Thank you. That that helped clarify that in my head. I'm like, OK, wait a minute here. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, no. Um, all right. So I'm going to I'm just going to go back to your book again and talk about goal setting. I've got notes here. Sorry, if I'm looking down, everybody, it's because I've got, I have a pen in hand and I'm writing notes and looking at notes they've written ahead of time. Um, And I know I want to keep you maybe to 45 minutes. Would that be okay? Sure. Okay. So I love goal setting. Do you, I imagine you know how to set some, know how to teach people to set goals and have set goals in your life. Would you, would you give us that takeaway today? Because it's so nice. Absolutely. It's it's the second chapter of my book called Goal Setting. It's the most important chapter. And that's where I talk about this three-step formula. And so the first step in setting a goal is to pick something that is within the area of your gifts and then have a specific date and a um, specific goal. So for example, let's say that a person wants to lose weight and and look better. I wouldn't say I want to lose weight and, and look better. I would say I want to be 152 pounds by February 14, 2023. That's mm-hmm. a specific goal. And then point two is you you take that goal, you write it down on a three by five card, and you read it every morning and every night. The principle of auto suggestion, just to drill it into your brain. And the reason is we will believe something, whether it's true or not, if we hear it over and over. And so for me, let's say I wanted to lose 100 pounds or or weight, which is something I've always struggled with. 
I wrote that down and I frankly didn't believe it for about three weeks. And then eventually you do believe it. And then that takes me to the third part where you're visualizing yourself there. You're visualizing the success. I was visualizing, oh, what would it look like if I was back in size 32 jeans, like when I played high school football? And so those are the three key elements. And I, I can tell you just on the visualization, for example, I, I told you about 10 years before I got elected to Congress, I wrote a note to my dad. Well, I had visualized almost every day being on that stage and winning a seat in Congress. And in my imagination, there was cameras going off and, and film going and people cheering and signs waving. Well, when I won and I got up on stage, it was freaky because it was identical. Identical really? to what I imagined. Yeah. So your brain really doesn't know the difference between what's illusory and what's real in, in, in terms of mind movies. And so they're very powerful techniques. Um, in the book, I talk about Jim Carrey. I think he's the best example, if I can just briefly give you his. Yeah, anything, yeah. Yeah, so these three points. So what Jim did, he struggled as an actor, got rejected from Saturday Night Live three times, and he pulled out a check and he wrote a check made payable to himself five years from now for, five, for $10 million dollars for acting services rendered. And he put that check in his wallet. He looked at it every morning. He looked at it every night. He visualized directors wanting to work with him. And just before that day, just before uh, November of 1995, um, he got a $10 million check for Dumb and Dumber and, and it all came true. Yeah. Um, so those, in terms of goal setting, that's what I would talk about. Um, once I, I set a big goal, it's too much for my brain to handle. So I, I break it down into little goals, like one every three months. So for example, I was a very ordinary, mediocre student in high school and I had a goal of graduating first in my class. My little card that I would read was, you know, I will have a 4.0 GPA by X date at the end of this first semester. And just worry about that little goal. And I, I think a big, a big victory is nothing more than an aggregate of little, little victories strung together. Yeah. Do you have some new goals? Like what are, what are some of your goals now? I do. I, I would like to see this book in the hands of, of almost every high school and college graduate. I, I, I wish if I was a millionaire, what I would do with this is I would send it for free. To, that's to what I would do too. That's, yeah. what, that's my, my whole thing I would love to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, because what happened, I, I had a book that, that changed my life when I was 14, Thinking Grow Rich. And I gave it to my daughter when she was 14, thinking this would be life changing. And she said, Dad, I know you love this book. I think it's the best book ever. She said, but I can't relate to it. It's a bunch of old, okay. rich guys trying to get rich. And there's no girl power. And I don't know any. I don't know who Andrew Carnegie is. And so I decided, let me talk about modern day celebrities and things other than just making money, could be losing weight, could be getting elected, could be starting a business. And um, and that, and then I wanted to put humor in there, too, to make it easy to, to digest, you know. And uh, that's what made me write this book. And all of a sudden she loves it and she can relate to it. And there's like seven or eight super high powered women that are now her heroes that I talk about in the book. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I, I, I was inspired like that, too. I'm like, oh, good. Thank you for including women in this book. I, I, it was a page turner for me because I was like, there's women in here yes. <laughs> and there and there needs to be. And we're kind of getting there more and more and more. But, you know, you're you what I just heard is you're a girl dad. Yes. yes. <laughs> and that's that's a big thing, isn't it? It's different, isn't it? Yeah, I have four girls, you know, I have four yeah. girls and one one boy. And it was interesting to me because the child who said that her name is Kaylee. 
is the, the most am, ambitious of the kids. She's straight A and student council president and captain and cheerleader. And if she can't relate to it and she's super highly motivated, she needs to hear some girl power, then I imagine a lot of other girls can't can't relate yeah, to it. At too. every age too, by the yeah. way. We've all been through a lot. It's like, all right, we're we're getting there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm a boy mom. So I have okay. four four boys, they're all in their twenties. Wow. And uh, I'll trade you bills anytime they're all in college at once. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so, awesome. Uh, and I also, while we're on kids, I heard you mention baseball. Do you yeah. love this random? And we're just chatting, but do you love baseball? Like I love baseball. Yeah, or? I love I love baseball. Um, I had the best time in Little League. I was so lucky. I was had a very positive winning experience. When I got to high school, I uh, hurt my ankle and um, in football, and they had someone to tape it in football, but didn't for baseball. So I loved it so much. I wanted to be part of the team. I became the announcer for the team and, and oh, traveled, traveled that way. Are you a yeah. baseball fan? Uh, we're a baseball family. Okay. Um, all the kids played baseball, and then we have a lefty pitcher at Georgetown. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, he's new, new there. He's got a, a COVID year. Okay. Um, we transferred to Georgetown this year. And so I was just in Georgetown this past weekend visiting and everything. Boy, is that beautiful. What a, um, what a prestigious, great school. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing. So, yeah, I love baseball. But, okay, back to the girls. Let's go back to the girls because um, this is this is girl power, everybody. <laughs> I love it. Talk about some of the women you have in this book that you talk about. It's amazing. So Jamie Kern Lima is a, a businesswoman and she had this idea she wanted she had problem with skin rosacea red breaking out and so she went to columbia got an mba and she starts this company where they have this makeup that you put on and makes women look beautiful and it covers the rosacea and um even though she's an ivy league person and works really hard she didn't have anything to show for it after three years she was down to only a thousand bucks in the uh in the bank, only selling two or three units a day. And she got a small break to go on QVC. And they said, we're going to let you go on QVC, but it's only 10 minutes and you got to sell 6,000 units and you got to buy them all yourself to make sure that, that we don't get stuck with it. And um, she was like, okay, well, my life comes down to this. And she hired a bunch of experts to tell her what to do. And they essentially said, you need to find some gorgeous girls in their early twenties who are models and put it on them. And then, and then that's the way to sell it. And she says to herself, my intuition tells me the opposite. Yeah. And so she went with her intuition. She went on the air without any makeup from in front of millions of people. And I saw, I actually saw the YouTube of it and she puts it on by herself just like that. And in the course of 30 seconds, I was like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. It was mind blowing for me. Oh, we're making my, oh my goodness. And so with a few seconds left that, that um, sold out sign, you know, popped up on the screen. She sold her 6,000 units. QVC invited her back uh, 200 times in a year. And that got the attention of L'Oreal, the biggest makeup company. And they bought her company in a cash deal for over a billion dollars. And so went, went from starting this company in her living room to, to being worth over a billion dollars. And she attributes nearly all of it to that one moment when it came down to trusting your intuition. And so on the chapter of about intuition, I, I talk about her along with a couple others, including yeah. my wife, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and and tell me about your wife a little bit. You just mentioned you just brought her into the conversation. What about intuition? So there? my my wife's intuition, she uh, she came from a, um, 
a, a family rural, didn't have a lot of money. She went to University of Florida, got a good job afterwards for four years and uh, got a promotion there. And her intuition told her she needed to go overseas. And, and it was weird to her because nobody in her family even has a passport. Nobody's been out of the country, not something she grew up with, but she felt strongly. And so she quit her job, moved to Amsterdam, worked there for four years and, and got this international experience. And she was ready for the next chapter. And she applied to Harvard, Harvard Business School. And they were so impressed with her taking a chance and getting an international experience that her application stood out from the pack and she got accepted to Harvard Business School and her life was spectacular ever since. But it it came down to Lori trusting her intuition, even though she didn't know why. She just knew that was the right decision. Yeah, Yeah, I love that. All right, what about, um, I don't know how to properly address, I'm sorry, like, do I say just uh, Chief, how do I say that? Sandra Day O'Connor. What's the proper? So Justice O'Connor, I think it's a perfect example of networking. I knew about her in high school. She was on the cover of Time. I read about her in law school. I never thought our, our paths would cross. But one night at 11 o'clock, I get a call from a fellow congressman. And he says, I'm supposed to introduce these high school kids from my hometown um, tomorrow. And I'm supposed to introduce Sandra Day O'Connor to them. And I can't make it. There's an emergency. Would you do it? And I I said, sure. And I went to the court and then Sandra Day O'Connor said, well, Congressman, if you're going to be introduced me, we should know a little bit about each other. And she spent a half an hour with me. And it was like I couldn't believe it. I was like talking to this big icon. And I said, so, Justice O'Connor, I have to ask, what was that like for you uh, to get that call? from President Reagan telling you the first woman Supreme Court justice in history. She said, I was shocked. She said, my interview with him was only 15 minutes long. We didn't talk about the law. We talked about, we both were ranchers. We both had riding horses. And uh, she got back on the plane and went back to Arizona where she was a state judge. And she goes, well, I sure as heck didn't get that job. And uh, (laughs) then a week later, she gets a call from President Reagan. He says, uh, um, Sandy or Sandra, um, I've got a decision and you're going to be the next woman Supreme Court justice. And uh, if that's OK with you and she goes, uh-huh. that's OK with me be here tomorrow. And she was there tomorrow. And one of the reasons I think it's so powerful networking is that she went to um, law school with, with Bill Rehnquist, who was chief justice, and maintained a friendship with him for 30 years. And that's how President Reagan learned about her name. She was an uh-huh. obscure state judge. And then to get her through the confirmation process, they they had some young guy that's fresh out of law school and he had been a clerk for Rehnquist named John to help her. And he was a smart guy and, and she got confirmed 99 to zero. And many years later, uh, her friend Rehnquist dies and president Bush says, I want someone really young and smart. And Sandra Day O'Connor says, what about that young guy, John? And John had only had two years of experience and she recommended him. And his name is, uh, um, gosh, He's a friend of John Roberts. And so John Roberts is the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And and he had maintained relationship all those years. So it's a perfect example of the value of maintaining good relationships with people you admire anyway, uh, because they, they liked each other and cared each other. But that little scenario resulted in three United States Supreme Court justices. Give me a lesson because I'm in my head right now. I'm going print versus verbal, print versus verbal with my journalism training. Should should I refer to you always as Congressman Rick yeah. Keller? Is that proper? No, just Rick. Um, okay. I I announced that I 
here's my view. I don't know what you think, Liz. I think people who emphasize their title have little else to offer. And so uh-huh. from, the, from the day I was elected to Congress, all of my staff calls me Rick. And that, yeah. That's how I prefer it. Yeah. No. I, okay. Good. Because I I did that. And I'm like, oh, did I mess that up? I hope not. So <laughs> we're gonna have to retape the whole interview. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. What um, what about? Let's talk like just about you in those moments of being a congressman. You know, you've 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 done all this thinking about being it. Here you are. It. I mean, there's an election. There's a this. There's a that. There's all those moments, and you get there. Are you nervous? Are you scared? Are you uncom? Are you in a in a uncomfortable zone where you know you've got a lot to learn what's your approach in that moment when you're doing something (laughs) yeah i did have a lot to learn because that was my first office i kind of skipped being mayor and state legislator and went there but i wasn't nervous uh the thing that i that i took most from it is you can help one person and and Mm -hmm. you can't change the world but you can really change someone's life and so for example, I spoke to a woman's lawyer group and afterwards, one of the young lawyers named Liz said her mom is in prison in Vietnam. And I said, for why? For what? And she went over there for a wedding and gave a speech in favor of voting. And that was enough to be considered terrorism. And they locked her away for a year and they couldn't get her out. And she said, would you help me? And something in my instinct said, we're, we're going to get her home and she'll be home by Thanksgiving, which is a couple of months later. And um, I went back to D.C. I found out we had leverage. There was a bill that was important to Vietnam that was worth $10 billion. And so Senator Mel Martinez in the Senate held up that bill. I held it up in the uh, House. And Vietnam's like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? And so they decided to let her free. And um, they went to her jail cell door. And her name is Cook Poche. And she says, you look sick. And she goes, I'm not sick. And they go, no, we, we think you're sick. You're going home to America. And so um, when she arrived in Orlando, we got together and I looked at my watch and it was three days before Thanksgiving. And it's so rewarding um, because every year in November, on the date that she was released, I get a little ding on my cell phone and I look up at it and it's from her daughter. And she says, Rick, thank you. This is the day you saved my mom's life. You can really help people. I didn't really change the world, but I, I did help that one person. Yeah. Do you think, oh, I have chills. Um, do you think that's the most important thing you did? Are there other things that you think are, I mean, I, I there's think so, so many things that you did, but. I think it's the most important thing I did. Yeah. I mean, I, I helped five and a half million kids go to college and that was my passion. That was important too. But I securing the, the freedom of, of one person who's unjustly confined uh, was just so rewarding. So yeah. rewarding. And, and her daughter gets all the credit for being so persistent and making all the contacts that, that led to her getting released yeah you know i want to talk about manners for a moment yes if you don't mind because yes. I'm, I'm huge into helping um people of all ages learn um things that are proper things that stand out things that go that you know she didn't have to thank you on that moment every time and that's such a that's huge to me i have people in my life who i thank like that because i've i've been resuscitated from life-threatening food allergies before so i'll go to that er doc every year on that day and say thank you and it's been 28 years now you know kind of thing um different but kind of similar but it's manners and things like that how important is a handwritten thank you note to you or uh something that just like old school stuff You know, it's funny. I read a study on that and they were trying to see what's associated with happiness. And so they took this group of people and they had them each do something that was um, 
that they thought would would give them joy. And one of the group, their mission for 30 days was to write a thank you note each day to someone who had done something in the past to help them that they never said thank you to. Maybe their best teacher or somebody who gave them their first job. And then they looked at those uh, the results, and those people were by far the happiest. And 90 days later, they were still happy. It had a residual concern. And so um, being being thankful and, and having gratitude is, is more than just lifting that other person up. It's, it's going to make you happy, too. Yeah, I love it. All right, we're gonna, we're running out of time. I can keep you here all day and just ask you stuff, ask you random thing. <laughs> it's fun. Um, do you have anything for for you know honestly that I I didn't ask you that you want to cover about the book or your life or your wife or kids or anybody? I know that we you got that one boy. How old's the boy? Twenty six in 26. Chicago, working That's as an insurance awesome. agent, doing well. It, if I had to leave you with one thought, it's that is, I think your viewers at some point in their life are going to face a decision just like you and I, where you have a choice to play it safe or chase the bears. And I hope they chase the freaking bears. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. All right. I can hold it up. Right. There right. it is. Yeah. You got to hold that up. <laughs> All right. Okay. September 27th, right? Yes. Day. All right. And, and thank you so much also to everybody at HCI Books. Oh, my goodness gracious. Are they like family or what? Absolutely. And Christian and Christine and Lindsay and Larissa and Allison and everybody. We're just so grateful for you. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Rick, it was really cool having you here. And thank good you. luck with your book. The next year is going to go by really fast. And I can't wait to see where you go, what you do with your book. It's going to be amazing. So, and the goal, everybody, he set a goal and that was to have this book and everybody's high school mitts and college mitts. So right. we got to help him achieve that goal. So that's a, that's a big goal. I love it when people vocalize their goals and dreams. Cause everybody. Thank, thank you, Elizabeth. And uh, I think there's only one person who won the international book award last year in your category. And so oh. you've got a lot to be proud of. And I'm, I'm just honored to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was so great having you here. Okay, everybody. Everybody knows I do not like ending shows, but we got to go. Take care, everybody. Thank you. (laughs) With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.